Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Braden Enterman. This week, I've really sensed the, the Spirit of God impressing me with this message. And I, my prayer is that this message would be something that really stirs your heart. Uh, not, not, in the, not just in an intellectual sense, but in your heart to, 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 to inspire you to follow Jesus um, and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And so again, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads. Father in heaven, as we touch uh, on a topic today which is one of the most emotion-stirring topics in the Bible, that right around the world there are people who've heard of these different terms, I want to pray to your Father that your Holy Spirit would speak through me today. Give me strength to be able to address this topic. May your name be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. just Just on the outset, I want to let you guys know that we would need weeks worth of of sermons to be able to even scratch the surface on the three angels messages and we've only had three sabbaths and i'm looking at my time now i've got 40 minutes before before 12 o'clock because of that because there's just so much in the third angels message that we could look at i'm wanting to focus on a few key things um, that have really stood out to me the first half of the message we'll be looking at history and then the next we'll be looking at some key thoughts and For those of you, if you're not familiar with uh, the things I'll be sharing, I encourage you to come and ask me afterward. There's only so much I can share, and I'll just just have to say things. But if you want to come up and talk to me afterward, I'm I'm willing to give you the foundation for what I say. A Tale of Two Cities. Charles Dickens wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities. And it's actually very interesting. I I lived out at Moree for a few years, and his son is actually buried in Moree. Can you believe that? Maury of all places. Charles Dickens' son is actually buried out there. You can go to it. You just, I think it's the only tourist attraction in the entire town. <laughs> a grave of the son of a guy who was famous. And, and, you, and you go there and the, the hot pools are also quite famous. Um, but you can go there and it says the son of, of Charles Dickens. When I think of the book of Revelation, this also comes to mind. It also is a tale of two cities. What are those cities? Jerusalem and Babylon. It's very interesting. I was thinking about this. It's, it's this big battle with Babylon. You've got the new Jerusalem. Inside of those, those cities, as it were, you've got, representative, uh, you've got kingdoms represented. You've got the kingdom of God. You've got the kingdom of Christ. And you've got the kingdom of Satan. And if you go through and look at the characteristics of these two kingdoms, these two kingdoms that are at war with each other, you'll find there's, a, there's, some, very, there's some great differences. You've got Babylon the Great. It's an earthly kingdom of earthly nature. And you've got the New Jerusalem, which is a heavenly kingdom. Its principles are heavenly. Babylon's principles are earthly. Babylon the Great forces worship. If you go into to Revelation 13, it forces worship. The New Jerusalem in Christ as the king attracts worship by, by the, the beauties of the gospel. Babylon the Great, it says, exalts itself. It's a, it's, a, it's a system of exaltation. You've got the New Jerusalem where you've got the key figure is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Humble, humility. You've got lies. You've got, it's, it says it deceives those who dwell upon the earth. You've got, you've got the kingdom that Jesus Christ is the king of, which stands for truth and truth alone. You've got the beast. You've got the lamb. This one falls and this one is exalted. And there's so many other things you could, you could go through and look at the nature of these two kingdoms that are at odds with one another. At the end of the day, this is a system of self-exaltation, this system here 
is a, is a, is a system of self-giving, laying down one's life. We have these two principles at war in the book of Revelation. We can see this. Lyle has shared the first and second angel's message so far with us. And I was, taking a ha- I was having a look at those two messages. The first one describes the gospel going where? The whole world. Who's, who's trying to communicate with the whole world? God is. And what's the message about? His kingdom. A kingdom that is based upon the, his law, his law of love, a law of selfless giving. And it's the truth. God is proclaiming this message around the world. Okay? And then you go to the second angel's message, and it talks about Babylon and has made how many of the nations? All nations drink what? The wine of the wrath of the fornication. Can you see that both both Babylon, well, let's just take it right back to the beginning. You've got Christ and Satan. They're both on a campaign to communicate and to, I guess, conquer the world. Christ is conquering the world with the gospel. Babylon is conquering the world with lies. This wine, it's an intoxicating thing that makes people can't think straight. And then the gospel is that it opens our eyes to what is really, really happening. So in the first angel's message, you've got the gospel going to the world. Second angel's message, you've got the devil's, his counterattack, trying to feed all the nation's lies. And then you've got the third angel's message, which we'll be looking at today. I want to take you through um, just a bit of history, looking at the the basic fundamental nature of, of religion and how it has operated in the past. We take for granted the concept of religious freedom today. We take that for granted because that's what we've kind of had from, from, from our birth, unless we've come from other countries. We live in an age where there is, praise the Lord, we can actually come and worship in freedom. But if you look at every other religion and go right back in time, force and coercion have just been fundamental uh, ingredients to their religion. When you think about ancient Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he received a dream what did he do in the very next chapter, chapter 3? He built, a, he built a golden statue and commanded the entire world to worship him on pain of? Pain of death. Being chucked into a furnace and burnt alive. Pagan religion had this element. If you did not toe the line, you would suffer the death penalty. You've got this combination where the, where the religion and the state are combined together and dissenters get killed. This is just a normal thing when it comes to paganism. And that's... Who, who, who started those religions? The devil. The devil started those religions. And you've got force, coercion, where you've got this power structure that's above that people get crushed down if you don't toe the line. Um, let's go to ancient Persia. There's some guys who got a law enacted, basically saying unless they worship, anyone worships the king for so many days, they'll be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. And most, like in, a, in an ordinary circumstance, you'd be eaten alive by lions simply because you wanted to worship according to your conscience. Wow. Imagine, imagine him. You think sometimes, why did he open his window and why did he go and pray like that? He should have just gone and hid somewhere. And, but he wasn't going to allow people to define how he worships God. He was going to obey the dictates of his conscience the, the revelation of the word of God, and he was not going to allow people, however, however powerful, to impose on him. We think of ancient Greece and, sorry, and then ancient Rome as well. And, and you just have all these stories of where there's the, the church and the state are combined together, and if you dissent, you're in trouble. Uh, often the, the, the Roman 
the emperors and stuff like that, there would be, there'd be persecution of people who oppose the religious beliefs of the day. And this was just part and parcel. This was what you had. And then someone was born during this time named Jesus. And he came to establish a new type of kingdom. He got around him uh, a small group of guys and he started teaching them principles that were completely revolutionary. It was completely opposite to the principles that governed religion and the state of that day. There was one time where Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and he was going towards Jerusalem and the, uh, the, the Samaritans, they actually treated him quite disrespectfully. John and James were furious. Do you know what they said? Should we rain down fire from heaven and devour them? Like, think about what they're asking. They're asking for fire to come roaring down from heaven and just consume their bodies and just toast them. And they're just angry that they just treat Jesus like that was because they got treated like that as well and they were very angry to, to retaliate. And what did Jesus say to them? You don't know what spirit you're of. That's, 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 the, that's the spirit of Satan's kingdom, where if someone disagrees with you, you force them, to, you, you, you force them into a mold. You don't know what spirit you're of. He began teaching them a whole new way of... of he, he, taught, he was teaching the principles of the kingdom of God. So much so that the king himself, facing all of the abuses that human beings and demons could throw upon him, he did not in one way treat anyone with disrespect. He did not lash out in retaliation to defend himself. And the cross, far from being a defeat, was the greatest victory... It was a huge victory in his selflessness and he dropped his head. It is done. It is finished. The devil's kingdom was done because through self-sacrifice he proved to the universe the principles of, that, that God's principles of his kingdom are superior and that the devil is a murderer. A new kingdom. You know, when Jesus was on trial uh, before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Pilate did not realize who he was in the presence of. He's this guy who's dressed humbly, He's been beaten, he's got a black eye, he's got blood coming out of various places because he's been bashed on when he was at the, at the high priest's house. He doesn't look like much from the outside and here we have the Roman governor and we have the king of kings and the lord of lords standing face to face. And Jesus says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. But my kingdom's not from here. I'm a king but not, not like down here. And my kingdom, the limits of my kingdom, are, it's the universe. I am the king of the universe. And standing there, Jesus, as that king, the, the, the lawful and rightful king of the universe, lays down his life, setting a precedent that he wants the world to follow. And if you think about it, from that moment on, a, a, a movement was begun with 12 unlikely, uh, lead, uh, unlikely characters to lead it out. Uneducated people, just tradies, absolutely overwhelmed and gobsmacked at this new principle of operating, operating a kingdom. And they started proclaiming this, this, this religion went, it, it crossed national boundaries. It started to go in within a few hundred years. Uh, Lyle was telling me, paganism actually disappeared. Well, it did kind of go into the church, but it kind of, Rome, the Rome's religion switched. This, this powerful movement has spread across the world and now it's in every country on planet Earth, basically. Uh, this, this amazing movement where they conquer not through force but conquer by 
the beauties of the gospel and people are, are convicted and they lay their lives down and become soldiers of the cross. It's a completely different type of warfare. A very sad day for the Christian church took place in uh, the the 4th century. Emperor Constantine was was someone who made the the Christian religion like the national religion of Rome, but it, it was a polluted form. Paganism and Christianity were mixed together, and because of all the persecution of the, 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 the centuries prior, the Christians made compromises to secure peace. Now the persecution stopped, and paganism and, and Christianity mixed together. Very soon, when you, the interesting thing is, when there's compromise in, in, in religion, soon after that there follows coercion. When there's compromise from biblical principles, the next thing, what do you, how do you sustain your religion? You, you sustain it by force. And this is exactly what happened. During the Dark Ages, you've got this combination of church and state, where if you believe differently to the, to the papal system, if you believe differently from the, the priest and the, and the church down the road, your life was in jeopardy. You could not even present an alternate view and proclaim that without being burnt at the stake ripped apart, chopped in pieces, tortured till your body can't endure anymore. 50 to 150 million people were butchered, cut down, murdered throughout the Dark Ages because they were willing, they wanted to, to, to believe the Bible and the Bible only. But the combination of church and state, that very pagan kind of thing that was just characterizing Earth's history, that, that, that type of government that seemed to be everywhere on planet Earth was now the church. The church had compromised and there was a few people who were underground that were holding the Bible faith true and holding it and preserving the beauties of the gospel. But the bulk majority of, of, of Europe, it was just held under this again, church and state combined, forcing, coercing people to believe a certain way. You can think about the, the Crusades, these holy wars that took place, and just the, all done in the name of standing up for the Christian religion. It's just incredible what people have done. Jesus was very different from this. He did not conquer with sword. He told, told Peter, put your sword away. We're going to conquer the world. We're going to, we're going to take this to different nations, but it's not going to involve swords. It's going to involve the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God that we're going to use. The truth that God proclaims from Scripture, that's what we're going to use. You think of the, the massacres that took place in France in 1572, um, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where religious leaders and the, and, the, and the state combined went through... And c- How many people died, Lyle? 80,000 80, people one in one day, butchered. There's one, there's a, um, one, of the, um, one of the Protestants who actually was grabbed and so sad he compromised. Instead of saying, no way, I'm not going to betray my friends, he cowered on, with fear and he went from house to house and he said, and they'd go in there, tear them out, and, and, and kill them. And he was an informer, and he went around, and you've got the church and the state combined, and they're going around, they're killing people because they believe differently. That seems so foreign to us living here in Australia, but that's just history. That's exactly what has just characterized everything in history. And you've got the, Jesus starts this new movement, and then it just, and it compromised, then it led to coercion. Um, it's just what happened in history. The Protestant Reformation was, was incredible because people started getting back to the Bibles and the more that they got back to the Bibles, the, the more they started living like Jesus, 
the more that they recognize that the principles of the principles of the Bible is, is freedom. Freedom to believe. You know, there was intolerance with, within the def, different Reformation movements that, that took place, but God was having this movement come out of that, that, that the, the, the Dark Ages mess of combination of church and state. Until the point that, um, if you have a look here, uh, the papacy had a, 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 a kind of like a, a time of um, supremacy for, during the Dark Ages, and 538 going down to 1798, 1260 years. Around that time when it was going down, when that was getting crushed in 1798, uh, the French general Berthier came down in, um, and took the Pope off his throne and chucked him in exile. Just before that, you've got a group of people who, fleeing the persecution of the old world, go to the new world on September 6, 1620. I've been to there, to Plymouth. These are not the first people to arrive in America, but uh, in Plymouth, there's this, it's called Plymouth Rock, if you've ever been there before. And it's basically people the, uh, who came to, to this new land to set up a new way of doing things. They wanted, the people of America, they wanted a, a way of government that in, did not have a pope uh, and did not have a king. They could elect the people who would lead them. And there was, there's going to be freedom to believe according to your conscience. The United States of America is a miracle. You know, from that moment, this principle spread across the United States and it became a superpower in a number of years. Very, very interesting. But if you read history, you'll find that the, the principles of the old world, where you've got this combination of church and state, in fact, uh, the, church of, um, the Church of England followed in the same principles. They, they kind of pushed away from the papacy, but started doing the same thing. They started persecuting people that opposed them. And so the Puritans went across to America. But, this, but once they came over here, they found it very, very hard to let go of the principle of, of, of co- coercion, forcing people to believe a certain way. And you'll find different places all over America, these accounts where uh, the, the, the local state enforced laws to force people to believe a certain way and to behave a certain way. Um, let's have a look here. So there's the Pilgrim Fathers. Let's skip that one. In Virginia, 1610, I think it's the, one of the first known laws to religious laws that was enacted. Every man and woman shall repair in the morning to the divine service and sermons preached upon the Sabbath day, that's Sunday, and in the afternoon to the divine service and catechizing upon pain for the first fault to lose their provision and the allowance for the week following, for the second to lose the said allowance and also to be whipped, and for the third to suffer death. That's uh, a real, um, I guess, a straightforward three strikes and you're out when it comes to uh, observing church. And I'll, I'll share with you another one that's a very faint picture there, but you've got George Washington, and he actually himself was, came under the penalty of a, of a religious law in Connecticut in 1789. He was riding his horse on, on Sunday, and he was pulled up for that. And this, there's multiple, multiple things where there's these laws that even in this new land where we've got these new principles... There's this natural tendency when we make biblical compromises, when the Bible gets closed, when, when, when churches start to exalt creeds rather than the word of God, we always naturally swing around to trying to force our neighbor to behave like us. It's a very natural thing to do, uh, and we see it in history. Religious compromise always leads to religious coercion. Always. When the Bible gets closed and we're trying to sustain this religion that's we're kind of defining it by what people say, 
we will resort to force to sustain it. It's only the pure, undiluted, undiluted truth of the gospel um, that, ha- that, does, that behaves differently. Okay, so we've spent a bit of time going through history, and, and we can have a look today. I was doing a bit of research. Um, in, in various countries around the world, religious laws are still being enacted. Um, and there are people who, uh, in America, want with all of their heart for us as, as, you know, as, as Protestants to get back to our, you know, our supremacy and to be able to enact laws in America. That's what people want to have happen. A lot of the churches want to enforce laws to force everyone to be Christian. They're like, this is a Protestant nation. All these people coming in, they're wanting to enact laws to kind of lock themselves down and to basically protect it. You know, there's sincerity there. They're wanting to protect the Bible religion, but they're doing it in the wrong way. We, we, we're meant to evangelize not with force, but by presenting the gospel. Okay, so now we're going to get to Revelation chapter 13. But I want to just do a quick little... And again, I'm going to be doing broad brush strokes and come and talk to me afterward if you want to. But in Revelation 12 and 13, we're introduced to the three agents, as it were, that the devil works through to get worship for himself. In, in Revelation 12, we've got this pagan Rome where, where the devil is, is using the power of force, trying to crush out Jesus. And then he goes on to persecute the church. And then we've got in Revelation 12 and 13, you've got papal Rome, the papacy, which, which right through for those 1260 years is forcing people. And behind that power is the devil trying to get worship for himself. But in a strange twist of events, in Revelation 13, it predicts the rise of Protestant America. It's, it's like a lamb. It's, 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 it's based upon the principles of the Bible. It's like Jesus. But then it, has, it starts speaking like a dragon. There's a switch. And in a strange twist of events, the Protestant church itself starts enacting laws to force the conscience. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. And notice the different principles here. So Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. Speaking of the arise of Protestant America. Then I saw another beast. A beast represents a nation, a kingdom. Then I saw another nation coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence the first beast being the papacy. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And what's that word? And causes, you could say forces or coerces, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship who? The first beast, the papacy. He performs great signs so that he, makes, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those, notice, deception, Who's now working through this power? God uses truth. The devil uses lies. God uses attraction. The devil uses coercion. He's infiltrated and he's going to use this to secure worship for himself. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Do we see a a reintroduction of, I guess, coercive religion, where if you do not worship the beast, you will be killed? Can we see that clearly from, from Scripture? 
It says he causes, again, he forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no man may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. You could spend so much time unpacking all of this, but I wanted to summarize it for you. The Bible predicts that just before Jesus comes, there'll be massive compromise in the religious world. Not just in the papal realm, but in the Protestant realm as well. And Protestant America is going to be the centerpiece for forcing and enacting religious laws to force people to believe a certain way. If you dig into it, you find out that it's a, battle between, it's a battle between those who serve God and obey his laws and those who don't serve God and disobey his laws. It's a, it's a, it's a battle over God's law. And what we do when, when we study into this, we find that the Bible predicts that a day is coming when people on the pain of death will be forced to worship, not on the Bible Sabbath, the seventh day, but on the first day of the week, Sunday. If this is a new concept for you, please come and talk to me afterward and I'll take you through the Bible study on it. But I'm just trying to give you the icing on the cake just so I can get through the material today. We see right through history, coercive religion, coercive religion, coercive religion, and then Jesus starts the Christian church. Different, based on different principles. It's a, it's a system of, of laying down one's life. It's the proclamation of the gospel, and it turns the world upside down, but then there's a compromise, and it goes back down into coercive, forcing religion. And then the Protestant Reformation takes place, and again, this, the purity of the gospel comes out. We realize that we don't have to kill people that disagree with us. But now, in, if you look at the, the religious landscape of the Protestant churches right now, do we see compromise? Absolutely. Do a little digging around, and you'll find that um, and, and this is, this is 500 years after the Reformation started when, when um, Martin Luther nailed those theses on the door of Wittenberg, the, of the church. And, and there's basically different Protestant churches that are saying, the, the protest is over, we're coming back, we're sorry. There's compromises that are being made by the Protestant churches, and what do you think will follow next? Coercive religion. In order to sustain your position, you resort to force when you're not resorting, standing upon the Bible. Can you guys see that pattern? Early church, compromise, coercive religion. Protestantism, compromise, coercive religion. The Bible simply shows us that just up ahead, the unthinkable will happen. Those who profess to stand upon the word of God alone will enact laws and behave just like the papacy behaved in the Dark Ages, will behave just like the the pagan religions behaved right throughout human history where if you don't agree with me, I'm going to try to kill you. How in the world can that happen? And the Bible says that, that this power, this, this Protestant United States of America is going to force that people receive this mark, this mark of the beast. It's very interesting that of all the concepts, of all the verses in the Bible, you know, we, we say John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. It is. Like, there's so many people who know it. But you can, ask, you can ask atheists, you can ask anyone, have you heard of 666 before? Yeah. 
have you heard of the mark of the beast before? Yeah. What and they're like, they've got all their ideas about what it's, what it's like. I've got a friend who became a Seventh-day Adventist simply because he is curious to know what that was. He jumped on YouTube and found Doug Batchelor. He went through and he was baptized. He, he, he turned up to my church out at Maureen and said, I'm super convicted. I, I want to become a Seventh-day Adventist. It's an amazing thing because it's just one thing. You know, these terms are just surrounded with so much intrigue. And I believe God perhaps put them in there because he, he wants people to be curious about this. He wants people to be ready for the end time, uh, I guess, deception, the end time disaster that's coming upon planet Earth. Now, I just want to just take a quick backtrack. We fall into the trap of putting the mark of the beast and the seal of God into this special category. And we're like, oh, I wonder what that is. Friends, if we boil it down, the distinction between God's people and those that do not serve God is very, very simple. And you could tell me what it is right now. It's very simple. It's always been the same. You know, if we read in, I think it's Matthew chapter 7, it says, Many will come unto me saying, Lord, Lord, we did all these different wonderful things in your name. He says, Depart from me, you who work iniquity. What's iniquity? Sin. Sin, breaking God's law. When all is said and done, when we distill it down, the basic fundamental difference between those who serve God and those who serve Him not, it's whether we're willing to obey God. That's the basic distinction. It's been the same way back in Cain and Abel's time. Yeah? God said, this is the way I want you to worship me. And Cain said, no, this is the way I want to do it. And then you've got Cain, who's got no biblical word of God foundation for what he does. And what does he resort to? Force. And he takes out his brother. He resorts to force because he's made a spiritual compromise. We see this right through. There's two groups. Those who serve God and those who serve him not. Those who obey God, those who do not obey God. That's always been the fundamental difference between the two groups and two classes of people on planet Earth. The fundamental difference has always been the same. So when we come to the mark of the beast, which is simply an identification, it's not on the head or anything like that. It's a symbolic thing about the decisions that we have made and what we do. You've got one group who are, I guess, in this category, the beast category, and you've got another group who are in God's category. What's going to be the fundamental difference? How they relate to what God says. Those, do they obey God? In fact, we have, at the end of the third angel's message, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So the group that, that doesn't receive the mark of the beast, what are they characterized as having? Be, being commandment keepers and having the faith of Jesus. Then they keep the commandments by Christ's faithfulness. They have Christ living inside of them. They're not keeping the commandments just by, you know, just trying to, you know, just keep up. They're actually converted people. The implication is, if the people who have the seal of God are commandment keepers, the other group will be commandment breakers. There's only one commandment, and, and you know, sometimes we find it a little outrageous to think about this, but there's only one commandment that's really under dispute. It's the Sunday Sabbath question. Nobody is going to get up and try to say, I believe we should start killing everyone. All Christians agree that, yeah, killing people is not good. It's a very obvious, there's a very logical reason behind it. Committing adultery, 
yeah, that's, we, we, that's not cool. We, we shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Honouring parents, yes, I agree with that. You know, bowing down to idols, I guess there are some religious groups that would beg to differ there. They want to bow down to idols. But the one that's always been under question, the one that's always been under attack, is what do we do with the fourth commandment? God says, remember the Sabbath. And then in those early ages, around Constantine's time, you've got the pagan day of worship, which just creeps into the church, and everyone believes that way, and they do that. Those who keep Sunday do not have the mark of the beast, because a lot of people do it in sincerity. Amen? They don't know any different. But the Bible says it's going to come to a head. Just before Jesus comes, it's going to come to a head. Uh, I guess at loggerheads where people are going to realize a decision that they need to make. And the Sunday Sabbath question is going to reveal the allegiance of the heart. Because the Sunday... Why do we keep the Sabbath? Can someone tell me? Because God said so. You know, why do we not kill people? Well, we could... Buddhists would come up with a really great argument and say, well, if I kill people, then, you know, then they're angry at me, and, you know, I go to jail. You could come up with a good case as to why you shouldn't kill. But for the Sabbath, the only reason we're here today is because God says so. The only reason we're here. And for the end time issue, when, it's going to dis- when, the- when everything's going to go bad and it's going to descend down into coercive religion again, the issue will be, who actually is going to take God seriously? Who's going to stand up for his law? And as we can see through history, if you look at American history, you'll see that time and time again, people have been trying to enact Sunday laws. A lot of sincerity. A lot of sincerity is behind that. They're, they're, they're worried. They're like, our nation is just falling apart. Secularism is just ruining our lives. And we've got all these different religious groups coming in and taking over. We need to stand up for ourselves. We need to enact laws to make this place... We need to stand up for what we believe. We need to force people to not worship on Friday. We, need to want, we want them to worship on Sunday and, and, and be Christians. There's a lot of sincerity. But when, when religion compromises... Religious compromise always leads to coercion and force. We see compromise in every sector of religion today. And the question will be at the end, who's actually going to take God seriously? Who's actually going to believe and do what he says? Who's actually going to take God seriously? I want you to turn with me now to Revelation 14. And in the next... Ten minutes or so, we're going to bring this sermon to a close. We haven't even touched on the third angel's message yet, but I want to read through it, and I I want to give you about 10 to 20 seconds just to let it resonate with you. And I want to ask a few of you how you feel after I read this message to you. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 through 12. Then a third angel followed them, saying, with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Is anyone jumping up and down excited at that passage? Is anyone feeling like, yes, I've just been waiting for that encouraging message? 
What's some of, what's some of the thoughts, the words, or the reactions that you have to the, that strong language? This is serious. Because the revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the one who gave this message to us. So the same Jesus who said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, now says, Whoever receives the mark of the beast will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. It's the same Jesus saying this, by the way. The same Jesus who gave his life for you is saying this today. If you search Scripture, you will not find a more potent, a more solemn, a more, I don't know, I'm I'm lost for adjectives, but you won't find a more solemn message in the entire Bible. Jesus seems to be super, super concerned to get a point across. And I believe Jesus has used such strong language here because as we're reading through the Bible, like, oh, it's beautiful, praise the Lord. We stop at this point because it's just such a, it just seems to not fit in. It doesn't seem to fit in with the biblical narrative. We're like, Jesus, my Savior, is saying that? What's going on here? And I believe God has accomplished his purpose when we stop here and go, what in the world is going on? Because we need to be ready and Jesus wants us to be ready for the final conflict. That's why Jesus has put this in here. We could break this down and we could spend a long time doing it, but I want to focus on a few key things today. Why, this is the question, why does Jesus use such strong language? Why does he seem to lose the tone of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Why does he got the, why is this tone of just like, it's like a desperate like cry, and it's, 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 it's scary, it's frightening. Why does he use this tone? It's life and death. Why does he say that people will drink of the wine of the wrath of God? Why does he warn people about that? God put this on my heart and it really just changed the way that I view the third angel's message. Jesus is terrified at the thought that you should drink the cup that he drank for you. Jesus is terrified at the thought that you should drink the cup that he himself drank for you. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember that? He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup... If you read the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's the same cup. He's, he's standing in our place and experiencing what we, should, what we deserve. And he drinks that cup alone. He drinks it down to the dregs. And he says, Father, take this cup from me. I, I'm frightened. I don't want to drink this. But he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And he goes through with it, and Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. He didn't think he was coming out after that one. He was going down, in his understanding, he was going down forever. It terrified him to be separated from God. It terrified him so much. That same Jesus who drank that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane is declaring in the third angel's message a warning, pleading with people to get back to their Bibles, to take the Word of God seriously, to be reborn, to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. He's terrified at the thought that you should drink that cup that he experienced. He knows what it tastes like. He, kn- he, he experienced it for everyone. He experienced it times billions. Like he experienced it for every single one of us. The compound experience of separation from God. He, he, he took that and he drank that cup. Frightening. Frightening. Jesus is giving us this warning. I want to I speak of three cups. Three cups. 
by way of an appeal and by way of closing. The receiving of the gospel is likened to the receiving of the water of life. Jesus says, he who receives me will never thirst. Jesus says in Revelation, you know, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink of the water of life freely. When we receive Christ, we receive the truth about the gospel. It's like receiving living water. That our parched tongues, which have been parched, coming to wells that are empty, turning to those cisterns that are broken, we come to Jesus and we find satisfaction. Our, Our thirst is quenched. If you've ever been super thirsty, I have. I was on a bike ride once. And I really underestimated this. I didn't take any water. And it was a massive, it was a very dry day. And I was gone for a long time. And it was a long time before I get to water. And I was actually getting worried. My mouth was completely dry. And I was, I was getting, I was riding my bike. And I had to get back to where water was. All you can think about is water. And when you put fluid, when you get water down in your throat, in your mouth, it feels amazing. Our craving for the, for, the, for the water of life is likened to that. That's our, Christian, that's our experience before Christ. The first angel's message talks about the proclaiming of the gospel to the entire world. The gospel is being drunk in and people are being readied for the coming of the Lord. They're, you know what it says? Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the fountains of waters and all that kind of stuff. Give glory to him. It, it, is, it works a transformation in people's lives. The, the gospel water is being poured out across the world. Then you come to the second angel's message and what's happening? The world is intoxicated with what? The wine of Babylon. Another cup. People are drinking in this, these thoughts, these ideologies, these worldviews. They're drinking them in and it's making them, as it were, intoxicated. They can't walk straight. They can't live straight because of their intoxication of the wine of Babylon. Then you come to the third cup. The wine of the wrath of God. Whether we drink that cup, all of it hinges on which cup we choose to drink from. Do we drink from the water, the pure water of the gospel, or do we drink from the wine of Babylon? And it's very easy for us to say, whew, I'm very glad that I'm not part of Babylon. I'm really glad that I'm here at Maitland Seventh-day Adventist Church. Praise the Lord that I'm not like other sinners and tax collectors and public... The Jews did that. And they didn't realize that they themselves were drinking in this false, false view of God, this false experience. Their, their Christian experience was one of intoxication. If they were not thinking straight. They were not living straight. Depending on which one of those cups we drink will determine whether we drink from that final cup. And Jesus says, please do not drink. Drink the water of life freely. I have given you in the gospel a message that I myself was willing to drink that cup for you. You don't have to drink that cup. Drink the water of life. Drink the water of life. It's sweet. It's pure. You don't want to taste the bitterness that I went through for you. Friends, I want to break it down very quickly. What does it mean to drink in the wine of Babylon? It's it's so broad, but I just want to bring it down to Maitland Church today. What cup are you drinking from? What cup are you drinking from? Friends, I want to hit some points today because God is convicting me to share this. We sit in front of our televisions drinking in. We drink from the polluted wells of Hollywood where murder, adultery, lust, the list goes on, is just being poured down our throats and we enjoy it. And yet we're super excited because very soon we're going to get an opportunity to stand up and we're going to just, Sunday law, get out of here. You know, we're going to be be strong when that comes and yet... 
We're delighting in the very things that put Jesus on the cross. The sad thing is today, pornography is destroying not only the world but churches. And the sad thing is, there are those who view pornography and then there's those who lie. Pornography is not just in the world but it's in churches. Young people struggle with it. There's a commandment that talks about thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus expands on that and says, He who looks lustfully upon another person has already committed adultery. We're worried about the Sunday Sabbath thing, and yet the devil's got us hook, line, and sinker when we're just caught up in this soul-defiling lust called pornography. There might be someone here who's struggling with that. Don't try to sort it out on your own. Come to Jesus. Drink the pure water of the gospel. That's the solution. It's sweet. It tastes better than that wine of Babylon. It's intoxicating. What about the stuff that we watch on television? What about the stuff that we let our children watch? Murder. Young people, through a digital form, are blowing people's heads off. There's games that have adultery elements. There are games that just, it's butchery, it's all this kind of stuff, and we delight in it. God help us. What kind of, what are we drinking from? Are we drinking from the first cup? Or are we drinking from the second cup? It's a terrible age we're living in for parents who are struggling with, you know, the decisions that their children are making. Get down on your knees and do whatever it takes. Because determined, it's determined by which cup we drink from will determine whether we drink that final cup. It seems like every film you ever watch today is just packed full of adultery. It seems to be the, the flavour of the month, the flavour of the year, the flavour of the decade, which just is normal. And people, even people who attend church on a Sabbath, delight in watching these, these things that dishonour the law of God. And the reason why I'm trying to bring this up, friends, is because the end issue, the crisis at the end of time, is about who will obey God. Who will stand up for the law of God? Should we be worried about this future time when there's going to be a a law that's going to force us to disobey the Sabbath? You know, I think the devil laughs at us. We give each other a little, little jab on the pew on a Sabbath. and We're like, yeah, it's coming. You know, it's going to be good. You know, I'm going to stand up and I go dig up my nutmeg that I've hidden up in the mountains. We look forward to that time. And I think the devil's laughing because he said that they've missed the point. The whole thing, a whole, my whole game plan, says the devil, is to get them to disobey God. They're worrying about this time in the future when I've got them sitting on their, their lounge each night. They're drinking from the, the wine of Babylon. They're drinking from these polluted sources. I've already got them disobeying the law of God. The deception for us is thinking, wow, one day we're going to stand up for God, but right now he's already got us. He's already got us. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? This hit me like a ton of bricks. We, we put this, the, the, the Sunday Sabbath Mark of the Beast thing in this special box, but it's just the same as the battle you face on a daily basis. Will you obey God? Will you obey God? That's going to be the question then. It's the question now. And I was reading in The Great Controversy, and it just cut me to my heart. The reason why our, our attempts at revival are just so weak and feeble, have you felt that sometimes? We give, like, money. We give energy. We give all these different things. 
We try so hard, and it just goes, and it just goes back down to where it was before. The reason is because we do not have an appropriate perspective of what sin is. We don't. We, we play with sin. We, we we're proclaiming that this message of salvation. Yet we're just like anyone else in our homes. We're drinking in these terrible, terrible things. Where the, the, our souls are being polluted from the, the polluted wells of Hollywood and whatever else you come into that. Yet we're looking forward to that time when, whew, looking forward to standing up. I'm looking forward to just standing before the firing squad and going, nope, I'm going to stand for the Sabbath. And yet the devil's got us today. He doesn't mind if you break the fourth or the sixth, fifth, first, tenth. All he wants you to do is break God's law. He wants you to kick God's commands around the floor and treat them lightly. My appeal to your heart is, whatever you are drinking in that is not the pure, undiluted gospel, whatever stimulus you are receiving in, if it is not if it is not the gospel, if it is not pure, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. If it's not that, then for your own sakes, stop it now. Jesus says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be separated from God. You do not want to go there. It crushed my soul. It crushed my soul. You know, we often go, oh, there's fire and various things like that. Jesus could not feel the physical pain of the cross. Hardly compared to the psychological anguish that he was facing. You know, it talks about fire. God's chosen to cleanse the world by fire, friends. That's what the Bible says. And we get all worried, we're trying to, different things. No. The, the pain of standing with, on our own, separated from God, that'll eclipse anything. Fire's like, huh. Nothing. That's just simply God's means to cleanse up this world. I want to appeal to your hearts. Whatever you're drinking, that's not the gospel. Stop drinking it now. The problem is, is that the wine of Babylon is intoxicating. When you're intoxicated, you're not thinking straight. You think, it's fine. It's fine. This is my... You're being a terrible example to others around you. But we're fine. And this is the problem. It's intoxicating. And I pray that in some way God has spoken to you. I could go through all the different types of things that we're struggling with in our society today. I could go through them and just one by one we'd finish at sunset. But I think you know. I think you know the wells that you're drinking from that are polluted. You know. Give it to Jesus. Drink the pure water of life. Pray for your young people. Pray for your souls. Pray for this church because when we, when we stand to our feet and be Christians... We will reveal to this world a type of life that is different from anything anyone has ever seen before. And we'll be part of that group which says, here is the patience. It's, 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 it's challenging to be a Christian. Here is the endurance. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. Whatever God says, they'll go, yes, God, I'll do it. Not because they want to be saved, but because they are saved. And those people have the faith of Jesus which is not my will, but thine be done. I do nothing of myself. I do the Father's will. That is the faith of Jesus. And I just want to invite you, if you feel convicted today in some way, don't don't be embarrassed because each one of us need to get on knees and repent. If you're feeling convicted, I just want to invite you to stand as an acknowledgement that God's convicted your heart. And we're going to pray.
because I have, God's put in my heart a desire and a, a vision for this church, what it can do. And it's so simple. I want us to take God seriously. When we do, the sky's the limit for what he will do for us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you and praise you that just like that woman caught in adultery, we too can have those beautiful words spoken to us. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The love that you have for us is so supreme. It is so wonderful. May we realize that you do not condemn us. We're already condemned. But you have, a, you have grace in abundance, power to transform our feeble and broken lives. And I pray that this be our reality. I pray that you'd bless Michael as he's in hospital, anyone else who is sick today. And I pray that you'd bless us as we leave this place to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Welcome to Lutterworth, the workplace of John Wycliffe and the place where he did his most significant work. John Wycliffe has often been referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. The morning star is a term coined to describe either a planet or a star that appears shining brightly in the sky just before sunrise. John Wycliffe lived around 150 years before Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, and the later English reformers, but the work that he did was key in paving the way for them. He was a reformer before the term became popular standing alone as a voice of change in his generation and in calling people back to the Bible. Educated at Oxford University, he was a scholar and an unrivaled debater. It was whilst he was a student that he first incurred the displeasure of Rome in denouncing the friars and their lazy lifestyle. He was a champion of civil and religious liberty. And John Wycliffe was the first in his era who coined the term Antichrist in reference to Rome. 
the Archbishop of Canterbury received from Rome a papal bull to investigate the writings of John Wycliffe. But due to his standing at Oxford University and the goodwill he had amongst the people, this was never followed through. Perhaps a key event that helped John Wycliffe was the papal schism of 1378, where there were two popes that each claimed to be the right pope. And so amidst this confusion, John Wycliffe was left in a state of relative peace to carry on the work that he was called to do. John Wycliffe was a great believer in the ministry of preaching. He trained men who were known as the Lollards and sent them out all over the country preaching the gospel. But his greatest achievement was the translation of the Bible. Today, we might not grasp the gravity of this, but back then, to read the Bible in the language of the people, as opposed to the Latin, was seen as heresy, something that was forbidden and viewed as dangerous. A church leader in Wycliffe's day, commenting on his translation, said these words. And so the gospel pearl is thrown before swine and trodden underfoot. And that which used to be so dear to both clergy and laity has become a joke. And this precious gem of the clergy has been turned into the sport of the laity. Wycliffe, though, declared plainly, Christ and his apostles taught the people in the language best known to them. It is certain that the truth of the Christian faith becomes more evident the more the faith is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but in the common tongue. John Wycliffe completed the first translation of the Bible into the English language from the Latin Vulgate. It was not a translation that was without fault, but this Bible shed light where previously there had been only darkness. The Bible once read could do only one thing, pierce through the spiritual darkness that was covering England and Europe at the time. The beams of light began to shine now. The revolution that would be the Reformation would become unstoppable. Today we have the Bible easily accessible. And today I want to challenge you to commit to read God's Word every day, to spend time in His Word, because as the psalmist says, the entrance of thy words gives light. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.